You are listening to the Nurturing Birth Doula podcast, where we aim to dispel the myths, debunk the stories, and help people better understand the role of the doula in the 21st century. I am your host, Sophie Brigstock, owner of Nurturing Birth and course facilitator, and I invite you to grab a cuppa, pop on your headphones, and listen in as I chat to doulas, birth keepers, and nurturing birth friends about all things perinatal. Welcome back, everybody. So lovely to have you here at the Nurturing Birth Doula podcast. Today, I am really thrilled to have the gorgeous Charlotte Bailey with me. Charlotte is um, a doula, but also a mentor and a facilitator on the Nurturing Birth team. So someone I know really well, and uh, I'm thrilled to have you here. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, Sophie. Gosh, when you say it like that, it sounds like I'm wearing an awful lot of hats. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps by way of introduction, can you let everybody know a little bit more about who you are, where you're based, and and perhaps a bit about your doula journey to date? Yeah, sure. It's quite convoluted. I'll try and keep it as brief as I can. (laughs) So my name's Charlotte. I live um, in Hampshire. I live down in in Winchester. Um, I'm a a birth and postnatal doula. Um, My journey into doulaing uh, began quite some time ago I, I I used to work for the third sector so I used to work for charities and was very keen to work within um, the millennium development goals of reducing maternal morbidity and uh, mortality um, but the recession hit and there wasn't much work for the there wasn't much work available for the kind of thing that I was doing and so I made a decision to train as a midwife the idea was actually that I would go to work for Medicine Sans Frontières, quite like the idea of um, catching babies in war zones. Wouldn't do that now. It sounds terrifying. <laughs> so um, it, it was a very quick decision for me. It was quite accidental. I'd literally made the decision and 72 hours later, I'd been accepted on a local um, direct entry midwifery course. It was one of those situations of um, just say yes now and work out the how later. Um, and after my second year of three years of training, I had my first child, Elodia, who is now eight, um, and realized in hindsight, I had some pretty bad and prolonged postnatal depression. Mm-hmm. I'd gone back to university after 14 months off, found the return to practice very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. In, the, in that year, the landscape of maternity services had changed considerably. Um, the hospital I trained in had closed down. Um, the number of um, uh, opportunities for employment post-qualifying uh, were reduced. Um, I think the RCM had been on strike that year for the first time ever about the pay freeze that had gone on and on. And which if I hadn't have gone to work for Medicine Sans Frontier, I would have been an independent midwife. Um, it was the year that the independent midwives lost their insurance mm. and looked like they couldn't continue to practice. And so all of that combined, I thought, you know what, this just isn't the right place for me. And I was heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. So I went off and did a bit of maternity nursing, licked my wounds for a little while. And people kept saying to me, why don't you just go and be a doula? Why don't you just go and be a doula? And that word just used to stick in my heart like a knife because the way they said it, it made it sound like it was somehow less than being a midwife, that I'd somehow failed. And so the consolation prize was being a doula. Mm, I hear that a lot. 
Yeah. And so, and so my, you know, it, it wasn't, my ego was really in my own way. Um, anyway, I took some time out. I, I recharged, I re-energized. I went to my, my home home, which is the new forest and had a really good think about it and came across nurturing birth and decided, you know what, let's just give the course a go and see how I feel about it. And had quite a, an amazing experience uh, back in 2016, this was on the MB course and realized that actually uh, the role of the doula was what I had always wanted to do. And it was what I wasn't able to do as a midwife. And it was what I was becoming increasingly frustrated about not being able to do the closer I got to qualifying. So in a way, it, it sort of saved me. Um, and the birth activism side that can sometimes cross over into doulaing really excited that kind of third sector uh, social activist in me. So I found my path and I was really happy for it. Um, gosh, that was ever such a long time now ago now. <laughs> <laughs> so I have since 2016 um, been working as a doula. Um, my, because of my own personal experience of having postnatal depression and being a very lonely new mum, feeling very isolated. I was living in London at the time. I had no family around me. Uh, my partner at the time, uh, his family all lived overseas. We, we literally had nobody um, to help us. And I really thought, and I think a lot of people around me thought as well because of the midwifery training, that I totally had this, mm. that I knew exactly what I was doing. I didn't need any help. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, that just exacerbated that loneliness. And remembering all of that, um, gosh, I remember debriefing some of that in my nurturing birth course, actually. Um, it, it gave me a real um, focus on working with women postnatally um, and really thinking about how we, particularly in this country, fail to support new mothers, new parents, um, and how that can lead to all sorts of perinatal mental health complications that quite often go unnoticed or are misdiagnosed or you know just yeah just wanted to really kind of make a difference to those people who were either at risk or of of those things or or just trying to avoid them altogether yeah so yeah yeah and before we dive more into that because I feel like that's that's where our myth around doodling is taking us um tell me a little bit more about your practice now what what how does it balance out for you now as a doula yeah interesting you know I heard somebody maybe it was you Sophie I think <laughs> it was recently talking about seasons of doulaing mm. um, and what's been interesting and it's something I love about doulaing is that you know as our passions wax and wane um, so too can our doula practice in terms of you know what it might look like I've always been very passionate about birth it's it's probably the part of doulaing I've always enjoyed the most even though the part that I've felt most uh, galvanized into taking action around is the postnatal period but I've always loved birth so I have always supported birth as well as doing postnatal work and I've always liked doing the two things as well from a business perspective it makes sense it enables you to leverage your time being you know, with postnatal clients while you're on call from a, for a birth but um yeah so I've I do both there have been seasons where I've done more of one than the other because that has suited my passion at the time or my life circumstances so I had a second child 
uh, during the pandemic. And I thought I worked all the way through my pregnancy right up until about 36 weeks. I think I was still supporting births. And then I was 12 weeks postnatal when I supported my first client. So I really didn't have much of a maternity leave, but that was fine. It felt very manageable for me. Um, What I was surprised by during that time was that I thought with such a little baby, postnatal work would be more easy to manage for me, Mm. easier to plan, easier to plan childcare, that kind of thing. Um, Actually, what I found was that birth work was easier because often if you're called out to a birth, you know, you'd need some childcare for maybe 24 hours. Whereas with postnatal support, you might need somebody regular to come look after your children, you know, two days a week for six weeks or something, or two afternoons a week. For and it, it was just, yeah, logistically, it it surprised me, but it felt easier to to continue to work with birth mm. rather than in the postnatal arena. So, yeah, I've done a lot more. I've done a lot more birth support the last couple of years than postnatal. My postnatal work, you know, I, I take a really um, considered approach to. I've done lots and lots of research um, and particularly inspired by some books that I'm sure people listening will know, The Fourth Trimester, um, The First 40 Days. Uh, I think there's another one called The Postnatal Depletion Cure, which is written by a doctor. Um, you know, things that Books that look really holistically at, at what can contribute to postnatal well-being. Mm-hmm. so thinking about a whole range of things you know psychosocial needs of of a new mother but also their nutritional need their need for sleep what's happening hormonally and so uh, I've started to take a, a a much more sort of holistic approach to supporting my clients or or rather um I'm sorry I don't want to confuse things by suggesting that I'm sort of bringing in other practices I don't do that but the questions that I bring to my clients are encouraging them to think about their own well-being slightly more holistically mm. and supporting them to you know promote their sleep supporting them to um, support their own hormonal balancing by really considering their nutrition um, signposting them to nutritional therapists who specialize in um, postnatal depletion you know for instance um, yeah and and thinking about um which I'm sure we'll get on to talking about the matrescence, um, which is not a word we hear very often, but we are increasingly hearing it. Um, so that psychological, neurological shifting of identity, which can feel very unsettling for some, very unsettling and quite surprising. So I bring that to my postnatal work uh, and hopefully make a difference. <laughs> I think that's really important. I mean, the first myth that I want to dispel here is that doulas are only for birth. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you and I have have just recently um, co co facilitated a a doula course together. And the question came up, could you just be a doula at a birth? And um, I think we were both very adamant that preparation is is the key. It's the It's the time that you spend with clients in advance of of a birth and the postnatal period, which is so, so important and valuable. The the conversations that you have, which encourage people to think about what their needs might be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not just their needs as parents, but needs individually and and the baby's needs, too. 
um, so we were talking about the, the need for preparation, but also recognizing that that birth is it's a gateway. You know, it's a it's a, a one day depends on how long the actual labor takes, but it's basically in you know, a one day event. But at the end of it all being well, there is a baby and you are venturing into this postpartum territory. And the postnatal period, I think, you know, some people talk about it in terms of, well, it's just a, you know, a couple of weeks or something. And actually, in terms of the perinatal period, it's regarded as like more than a year, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by the time I had a diagnosis for depression, my daughter was two years old. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I was probably feeling the best I'd felt in that two years. And it was because of her age that they didn't call it postnatal depression. But I knew it had gone on from about month four, which yeah. is quite typical for it to, to kick in. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about our births in our pregnancy. And that makes sense because it's a monumental um event that happens but we tend to forget about what next and of course yeah. the what next is very difficult to navigate if mm. you haven't given it any prior consideration and you're super exhausted from a long labor mm -hmm. there's all that shifting going on in your brain the, the 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 neural pathways that are being laid down you know there's a lot of changes happening that make decision making quite challenging I do ask my clients, you know, when would you like to make these decisions now while you're rested and well, <laughs> or, you know, when you're tired and on your knees, it's, it'd be very difficult to make them later. Yeah. I don't know about you. The vast majority of my clients tend to be people who have very little experience around babies. They've not really spent much or any time with friends or family members who have babies so it all seems like a totally foreign land to them and and I think that's one of the things that certainly comes up in those books that you mentioned that culturally we have lost sight certainly in this country of of what does the postpartum period look like and what are the needs of, of a new family? And we have so much expectation placed on us by society, by social media, by friends and family to be a certain something by a certain time. So, you know, I, I talk about, you know, walking into your local supermarket and seeing the magazines on the shelf with the, I had my baby six weeks ago and look at me, I'm, you know, absolutely you know glammed up to the max with my hairs done and my makeup and I'm back in my size six jeans and I'm back to work and I've got an incredible social life and you know look at my gorgeous baby it's so unrealistic so unrealistic and the reality even behind those stories is that there's it's taken a whole team and a whole day yeah absolutely. to get that person to the point where they're you know hello magazine ready yeah yeah, and, and then a and, whole load of Photoshop experts afterwards to tweak and erase and airbrush. And <laughs> yeah, and the untold story is what happens in the days that come after that photo shoot. How exhausted is mum? How unsettled is baby? How well do, do they feel as a family to get things back on track and to recover from what must be a very disrupting um, event mm. at a time when people feel very fragile? 
very vulnerable and easily unsettled. Mm. Yeah. So along the way, um, as you've worked with postnatal families, have you encountered some interesting traditions or cultural behavior around the postpartum period that has really kind of shifted your thinking? Yeah. Um, when I was a student midwife, I supported um, a friend through the birth of her fourth child. And she is Orthodox Jew. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, um, she went to a convalescence, um, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, home. Mm-hmm. And had a couple of weeks out, left her older children at home with some family members and took her littlest baby and she went to rest and recover. And a large reason she did that was because um, she'd, had a, she'd had an epidural during um, the birth of that child and um, it had left her feeling quite uh, physically unwell. Mm-hmm. She'd also reacted quite strongly to a drug that she was given during the third stage to, as she was told, help with the birth of her placenta. Um, And it, and it kind of knocked her for six. Mm. And um, she found holding her baby very difficult because she was shaking a lot. And so skin to skin became quite difficult. Mm. And she felt like um, she just hadn't got breastfeeding off to, the same start that she had been able to with her other three children and, and she'd breastfed all the way through her pregnancy and baby it was a bit of a shock to her that things were so um difficult this time around you know also managing three children as well when you've had just given birth to your fourth is is tricky in itself so she made the choice to go away to um sort of mother and baby convalescent center that had i think it was um a provision through the synagogue. I'm, I'm not entirely sure on the details there, actually. And I remember her telling me about it and me thinking, gosh, that sounds very old-fashioned. You know, talk <laughs> about the kind of judgments and the myths that we, that we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves. But actually, it was what she needed. Um, and it, that's probably what, what set the seed, really, got me mm. thinking about what do we need as mothers and what have we lost and what are we not doing to support each other? yeah um um other cultural practices mainly sophie if i'm honest um as a student midwife i saw i i I worked in west london and and i came into contact with many many um new mothers from a whole range of um, cultures and i often found that um the midwives around them were not very um supportive of the more traditional holistic um practices um because of the lack of so-called sort of you know evidence-based scientific research into the benefits for yada 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 um and so yeah there was some there was I think you know when I started to do my own research there's probably a bit of unlearning that I had to do around you know but definitely sort of you know, um, you know that kind of um, internalized kind of prejudice actually um, mm. around what what was the best way was it was it the western western ideology that was based in science or or was, was there some real gold 
in the traditional practices. Mm, I think what's been really interesting to hear for me is that those cultures where there is a very strong postpartum tradition, particularly around supporting the new mother, um, that their the mental health um, issues challenges tend to be far fewer. So, you know, we have. I remember going to a, a mental health um, perinatal mental health conference. Gosh, it must be about four or five years ago now. And a couple of the the speakers there talking about between one in three and five new parents having some kind of mental health challenge. And obviously postnatal depression is the one that kind of gets spoken about the most, but there are many different um, potential challenges there. But what they also said is that those in those cultures or traditions where the mother is absolutely supported to rest, to recover from the pregnancy and birth experience, enabled just to focus in on feeding the baby and that everything else is managed by the the friends and family around them, the community around them. Those people tended to recover far quicker and far better. And I think that's really interesting. And, and Hengu talks about that a lot in, in the first 40 days and how having three children, the first baby she had, I think it was mother and auntie came over from China and absolutely helped her to observe the, the laying in period um, as they do in, in traditional Chinese um, tradition. Um, but then when she um, then when she had her second baby, for some reason, I think that didn't happen. And she was living in America and she just kind of tried to bust on through and felt total depletion. And yeah. so when it came to number three, it was kind of like, OK, it's going to be a little bit of a mixture of things going on here. You know, what, yeah. what do we actually need? So it so, raises yeah. some really important questions, doesn't it, around something I hear a lot, especially from first time parents, is my mother-in-law wants to come and stay the first few weeks after the baby's born. And we've told her that's a hard no. Yeah. Or we don't want any visitors visiting us at all for the first few weeks. Yeah. Um, and whilst I completely understand the need to be very selective about who you let into your postpartum home your bubble because you know as I said earlier new new parents are so vulnerable and fragile that it's important to have positive energies around you I don't think we're designed to raise babies on our own and if no. we're recovering from a very taxing labor or or pregnancy actually we need the support we yeah. really do otherwise we can end up feeling quite depleted and I think that's what we consistently see in and very our culture isolated you know, so, we're not designed, so we are not designed to have these kind of nuclear 2.4 families. We're not designed to sit behind the front door within our no. four walls with no interaction with people. I mean, you know, if we take it back, we were meant to live in communities. And many people talk about it takes a village to raise a child. And I totally and utterly get that. I really feel it. So I, I use my, the birth of my second child as a bit of an experiment. Okay, massive experiment <laughs> <laughs> to try out all the things postnatally. I yeah. wanted to try all of the things. 
So I had a, a two week postnatal depletion diet plan drawn up by a nutritional therapist. I had um, weekly reflexology for the first three weeks. I tried placenta encapsulation. I used aromatherapy oils. Um, and I did nothing other than the, what, um, what Kimberly Ann Johnson refers to in her book, The Fourth Trimester. Um, she talks about, I always get this wrong, five days in the bed, five days by the on bed. The, on the bed, five days near the bed. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I literally didn't. I didn't really go and uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, the lockdown afforded me the privilege of not having to ever leave my house for that one. But <laughs> I just, you know, it was, it was, yeah, I'm going to say it. It was transcendent. I was blissful. It was crazy. I was in a constant high, probably for the first six weeks, definitely. Then I'd had an interruption that had something to do with work, not doodling, but something I do outside of that. And it caused a, a little stressful blip. And so I decided to hit the reset and I had another six weeks. Thank you very much. So I did the whole fourth trimester on the sofa or in my bed, loads of skin to skin, just being with my baby. And it was so wonderful. And not, you know, there was not one moment where I felt anything like postnatal depression, anxiety, OCD, nothing other than pure love and bliss. Talk into that a little bit more because people will be sitting there going, oh, well, you know, that's easy enough for you to do. But you had an older child, you had a partner who worked away a lot coming and going. You've got a baby, you've got to somehow, you know, this food needs to be made, bought, like how does how does that happen then how did you manage that so I built the tribe okay so my my I don't have family close by as I said earlier my my partner's family uh, are, are in another country as well my mother is the closest person geographically to me but during the lockdown she being older was very concerned and didn't want to come out so so I didn't have that support um what I did have was a beautiful community of doulas around me who were still practicing through through the lockdown. Um, I think I had a total of four doulas in the end. <laughs> I had a doula for my birth and a backup doula who, um, and it was my backup doula who supported me through the birth. So naturally I saw her postnatally, but I also saw my, let's say, primary doula postnatally as well. She came over and did a wonderful um, closing the bones ceremony with me, actually, and a lovely like abdominal massage and things. It was beautiful. Um, the doula that did my placenta encapsulation came over with my um, capsules. Um, and she also happens to be a homeopath. And I wasn't expecting it. And it was incredibly generous of her. But she debriefed my birth with me and it took hours and she was so generous with her time and her energy she just sat and held space so powerfully it was unreal and then treated me uh, with homeopathy as a result of what I was feeling and what I'd been through and then I had a really wonderful new doula um, who'd recently come through the nurturing birth program Lizzie Watson, big shout out mm. to her. She is lovely, who, like me, takes a real interest in nutrition for mental health. Um, and because I'd had this postnatal uh, depletion diet created, um, 
by a nutritional therapist, I contacted Lizzie and said, listen, could you come and cook these meals for me? <laughs> she said, yeah, no problem. Some of them I'd made in, 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 uh, you know, in pregnancy and frozen in the freezer. Um, but she came twice a week. And while she was with me, she um, would cook and I'd sit at the table and feed the baby. And we would talk a lot about all the things, all the thing. Um, and sometimes she'd entertain my older child because, of course, during lockdown, she wasn't at school. And yeah, my partner was working away in London. So the companionship that Lizzie brought, as well as that practical um, support in cooking the foods that I knew were going to nourish me in the right way. And then that incredible listening was everything and more I needed. And she stayed with me until um, Cassia was six weeks old. Yeah. So quite, quite a few people involved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and none of them, my family or my partner's family or even my partner. Mm. And it sounds like it was the best investment in your ongoing mental health and, you know, your family's time yeah. together and connection. I mean, you shared that you had postnatal depression last time. Am I, so I, okay I didn't ask how things have been since this time. Yeah. I mean, you know, the first time with my first, um, child I got so anxious that I think I was probably a bit agoraphobic I used to stand at the window and think people were surveying the house to assess if I was a competent mother and that they were going to knock on the door and take my baby away from me Mm. so I didn't like to go outside in case people were watching me um and every time I heard a siren, I would have a full, like a full body reaction, shaking, palpitations, I'd lose you know, my breath. Um, and I lived in London, so I had sirens all the time. Mm. Equidistant from a fire station and a hospital. There were sirens <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I didn't have any of that this time around. I just, you know, I just, you know, when you, when, I don't know, you know, you know, when you meet somebody new and you fall in love, mm. that all consuming you know, jaw aching, constant smiling, blissful, ridiculous happiness. That's what I had this time. That's what I had. And it was, it was utterly delicious. I'd have, you know, I I keep telling all my friends, I want another baby and they think I'm mad, Uh, (laughs) but it's because that was just so lovely. And and, um, I think that's how we all should be transitioning into parenthood. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly think we're getting a lot of things very, very wrong in general. And how amazing would it be? I mean, if you're thinking about that period as being that initial bonding time that you have with your baby who, you know, as humans, I mean, I've got teenagers They're you know, one of them is technically an adult and, and yet they still feel very, very much like dependent people in my life. Like if you're, if you're committing to a very, um, you know, connected relationship for the best part of 20 plus years, you kind of want to get off to a good start, don't you? Oh my goodness. You know, we can talk about all of this in terms of theory, right? Traditional practice, this, you know, that felt lovely, that yada, yada. But there is some very convincing scientific evidence behind 
yeah. why this is good. You know, because from a physiological perspective, we understand the very delicate interplay of hormones in the mother's body, mm-hmm. um, also in the babies, what that's doing for the baby's uh, men- um, mental development. Yep. And setting that secure attachment. Yeah. So by nurturing new families so conscientiously in those first few weeks to enable the mother to transition into parenthood feeling safe and secure will enable her baby to feel safe and secure is likely to set that child up for life in terms of their mental well-being. Yeah. Absolutely. I recently have been listening to one of Oprah Winfrey and Bruce Perry's book. Um, um, I think it's called What Happened to You, something like that. Um, And what they share, which really shocked me, surprised me and saddened me too, is that the experiences that a baby has in the first two months of their life in terms of their brain development are, are more significant than everything that comes in the next 11 and a bit years. Like that first two months is so critical in terms of development. And I know, you know, I know from a decade of teaching doula courses, how many people have sat in the room, me included, and, and felt a huge amount of guilt or sadness or regret around how things were in that postnatal period and you know I think it's so important to not beat ourselves up for the things that we did at the time we always do the best that we can with the information that we have at the time but wouldn't it be incredible if we take this information now and we really support parents in those first critical days and weeks to have a much more positive supported experience so yeah. that they grow as a family those babies grow as you said securely attached and 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 get everything off to a good start i'd love to see that and you know the thing that comes to my mind as you're saying that sophie is how we love as a society to complicate things so you know you've you know the the baby expert industry is booming yeah with endless tips routines schedules whatever uh, guidance on how to have a contented baby yes um and all of those shouty voices dim and cancel and erase the most important voice of all and that's that innate inner wisdom of the mother themselves and I think if if you can enable a mother, a new mother, to quieten down all of those outside external voices mm-hmm. enough to listen to what she's instinctively called to do, mm-hmm. she will know. Yeah. What What do you need? I need to go to sleep. Yeah. Where do you want? Where do you need your baby to be? I need my baby next to me. Yeah. When? Where do? You, what do you need when your baby is crying? I need to hold my baby. What does your baby need? My baby needs to be near me. Yeah. Yeah. And yet that is so contrary to what the majority of the voices, external voices are saying. So I think a big part of our role as postnatal doulas is to enable those parents, new parents, to find that inner voice of wisdom. Because we innately know this stuff. If we didn't, we wouldn't have evolved. 
Absolutely. And if we trust that, that inner wisdom, I love that, um, that expression, then as doulas, we can signpost evidence-based information to support what the yeah. majority of these new parents are saying or feeling. And there are those books out there. There are yes. research papers to do that. So again, choose carefully, which if you are listening to an external voice, which voice it is. Yeah. But, you know, thankfully, there are, there are those experts out there who can, from a scientific perspective, justify the if that needs be if that if you need that if you need the justification that your inner wisdom is on point if you need that external validation luckily that exists too and a a good doula will signpost you to that information absolutely yeah I feel like we could talk about this all day and probably all day tomorrow as well and knowing from the courses um probably the day after that um you mentioned the term matrescence and so what I would love to do is to signpost because that's what we do as doulas um anybody who's listening to this podcast episode to a blog that you wrote for the nurturing birth um blog uh, page a little while ago about matrescence tell us in a nutshell if you can what what do you mean by matrescence yeah so it was a term that was coined by an anthropologist I think back in the 70s Dana Raphael Um, and it's had a sort of resurgence thanks to a a reproductive psychologist called Alexandra Sachs Mm -hmm. they talk about matrescence being um, a neurological shift I call it shifting a neurological development so we talk about um, neuroplasty, so the, the, the laying down of new neural pathways, the changing of, of existing pathways that enable um, an ad, a, a female to um, or, you know, a new parent to care for her baby, to mm. care for their baby. It's a learnt skill. So the brain is developing in order to be able to deliver on that skill. And just like um, when we were adolescents and our brain was growing and developing rapidly, um, with that development comes a feeling of feeling quite unsettled, heightened anxiety, um, difficulty around decision making, uh, emotional sensitivity, um, hormonal fluctuations. So that's what matrescence is referring to. It's that neurological, but also that psychosocial shifting of identity that happens to a new parent after they've had their baby. And the reason for it is that they can learn to care for that baby effectively. But we, we just don't give space for that. We don't even recognize it. We're only just using a term for it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what doulas do so beautifully is we walk alongside new parents. We support that transition phase. And I think the, the joy for me as a postnatal doula is that day when I turn up and I am redundant. I am no longer needed. You know, a new family have found their new ways of doing things. They are in a rhythm with their baby. They've worked out, you know, how and when they're going to eat food and, you know, they're, they're beginning to create their new tribe. And I think that's really, really precious. And it's about taking the ego away you were talking earlier about that but that that removal of the ego and recognizing that actually it's nothing to do with me mm-hmm. it's all to do with them and you know what an absolute privilege to be with people as they as they do that it's it's quite joyous actually to see people go no I've got it 
I'm here. Yeah. And yet my, my experience has been that my clients feel so embarrassed to say, do you know, what? I don't think I need you anymore. <laughs> like they're going to really upset me. And you're like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I've been sensing that for a while too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's great. It's great. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Um, how can people find you apart from obviously on the Nurturing Birth website as one of our mentors? Wow. Yeah. So, well, you can find me via the Nurturing Birth Directory. You can find me on my website, which is www.birthwarriors.co.uk. And then all the normal social media channels. I think Instagram (laughs) is birth.warriors and Facebook is forward slash birthwarriors. But you'll find me. My SEO is good. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Marketing queen. Thank you so much for coming along and um, yeah, looking forward to chatting again sometime soon. All right. Lots of love. Bye. Thank you, Sophie. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Nurturing Birth Doula podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you've got any questions or any feedback, don't hesitate to come back to us. It's info at nurturingbirth.co.uk. And do follow us on social media at nurturing underscore birth on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find us on Facebook as well. Please do give us a review if you've enjoyed this episode. We are on Spotify, we're on Apple, and we would love to hear your thoughts about any future episodes you'd like to hear. So do get in touch. Thanks for listening. Bye.